Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, Feisties. I am so stoked to present today's show. I really wanted to explore the topic of queer identities in sports. And before you think that maybe this show is just for people in the LGBTQ community, let me explain how this discussion affects all of us. Our guest today has a PhD in psychology, but she quickly learned that you can teach someone good mental skills, but unless that person is in a supportive environment, they're unlikely to perform well. And I think that's true for everyone, whether we are elite athletes or not. And I know I've said this before, but we can track our physiological data all day long. But if there are still people who feel like they they aren't comfortable in the spaces where we exercise and play sports, those people won't experience the benefits of exercise as much as other people. And that's a much bigger social problem. And I think it's one that many of us can relate to in one way or another. So I wanted to speak to someone who could shed some light on the LGBTQ experience in sports. Producer Millie suggested that we try to find an academic, which proved to be a lot more difficult than we first thought. However, after a little bit of work and digging, we found Dr. Vicki Crane, professor of sports psychology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, whose scholarship focuses on sex, gender, and sexuality in sport. As Vicki tells us near the beginning of our conversation, she kind of realized early that as a sports psychologist, she could teach people all kinds of mental skills. And as a, an ex-elite athlete, I can tell you that that's true. We have all kinds of people trying to teach us all kinds of things, but it doesn't help if you're in a homonegative or racist environment. And we need to address that environment directly if we're going to help the athletes. So Vicky and I had a long conversation about trans inclusion in sports, as well as how we could do a better job of organizing amateur sports in general, especially for kids. Instead of gender categories, Vicky asks, why not height or weight categories? Or why not categories based on skill level? She definitely asks a lot of interesting questions about how sport functions in our society, for us as individuals as well, and how we want sport to function for us as individuals and for society in the future. And I think that thinking about these questions for ourselves and for society at large will really help us understand our own motivations, which ultimately will help us to perform better in whatever we do in life. So before we head into our conversation with Vicky, just a reminder that if you haven't already, sign up for our newsletter. Every week we release an article that will help you feel and perform your best, and then we deliver it to your inbox. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app and leave a rating and review. It really does help. As always, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Vicki Crane. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. 
The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedda's have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. 
I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Hi, Vicki. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. It's fabulous to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so good to have you. Okay. I, you know, I, I wanted to start a little bit about the personal piece for you, um, just because I know that um, for many of us, the things that we study are very intertwined with the things that are important to us. So uh, what is your, are you an athlete yourself or were you and what's been your journey? Oh gosh. Yes. I was an athlete as a, as a younger person. I um, came up at a very different time. So I was in the early days of title nine. So I didn't really have a team for a long time. Um, I did, I skied competitively. I'm from Michigan. I played soccer. Um, those are my two main sports. And I did those in high school. Prior to that, there weren't competitive teams for me to join. I played soccer at Denison University. I always like to put that I was on the first varsity soccer team in the state of Ohio. Oh, wow. Level. So, um, yeah, so my sport experiences definitely laid the foundation for pretty much everything I've done in my academic life. Yeah, we did a whole series because the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year, and we did a whole series on nine voices for Title IX. And just hearing from people who, um, who like came through that time period, like as athletes themselves, like so much has changed. Is that your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the opportunities that women have today in sport are just completely different. I mean, when I started playing college ball, I was wearing hand-me-down uniforms from the men. We practiced archery field, not a soccer field. So yeah, I mean, it's watching sport go from those days to what we see today is amazing. Yeah. Could you have imagined it back then? You know, no. Um, I mean, I think we hope for it. Mm -hmm. Part of my just being a feminist was being a physically active child and always knowing that I couldn't do what my brothers did or I didn't have the opportunities. Um, and even getting into college, I will say in my four years of college, we went from meager resources to being equally treated to the men's team on a lot of things. And so, I mean, there was huge, huge increases in terms of just the um, the abilities of the athletes today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just a whole different world. They also put in a lot more time. There's pros and cons, and I could spend a lot of time on that, but I won't um, as to what we do in college sport today. But boy, it's just a whole different world. I mean, and now NIL athletes are making money, um, just the changes in the NCAA rules. Yeah. Some of this I just never could have imagined and some of it I had always hoped for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, that you're a feminist and I've, I've had, I actually had an experience with um, a head of department at the women's studies uh, here at the university of Victoria. And she, I was looking to take sort of a deep dive on a certain topic. And she said to me, not many feminists have studied sport. Right. And, and I, I had never heard that before, but is that your experience? Like do feminists shy away from sport and why do you think that is? Yes. Um- changed. Um, But when I first started women's studies, and we did not see sport being talked about there. And I'm a sports psychologist. So in my area, there was very little talk about feminist things. So it was kind of interesting that these two areas hadn't come together. Um, Sport's an interesting place. Mm -hmm. The initially sport is grounded in masculinity. And in the early days when women had fewer opportunities and we didn't see women on TV. And I think a lot of feminists looked at sport as like, there's a lot of toxic masculinity over there and a lot of men doing things that we're just not interested in. Mm -hmm. Really come across as a place that women were involved in a whole lot. Certainly if you weren't an athlete yourself, you didn't know we existed. It would be really easy for us to go unnoticed because there was no media attention. There was no writing about us in newspapers. So it was easy for the feminists and women's studies to kind of just ignore us or not even notice us. 
And then sport people, um, little by little, we started getting more and more people taking more of a feminist um, critical approach to sport. And eventually the two areas, there's a lot more overlap in today's world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought it was interesting that so I'm like way off track already. This, this is what happens. But like, I thought it was, you know, when we, when, for example, like when women stood up and said we want to vote or fought for like equal opportunities in education, the argument that like women aren't as smart as men, therefore don't deserve to be educated, like just doesn't hold much water. Right. But when you have an institution like sport that's designed, like you said, like around masculinity and toxic masculinity, and you have these sports in which like it would be very difficult, although I've never say never on anything, but like for actually the women to beat the men, quote unquote, like in the sports at the top level, like it's a different kind of um, fight. Right. Um, And so what do you see as like being whatever our ways around that in terms of like if we're looking to create a world in which like women have equal opportunities at every level like from pro sports right down like how do we make the best arguments for um for women being worthy of those opportunities watch women's sports mm-hmm. sports equal um resources provide opportunities for media coverage and not just silly coverage but real serious coverage of women's um, I mean, it's amazing. It's like there are people interested in women's sports, but you look at the major women's sporting events, they sell out their stadiums, put them in a bigger stadium, they'll sell more tickets, um, put them on TV at a time people knows how to find them, people will watch it. So I just need to treat women's sport in the same way um, as men's sports. I say that hesitantly, because there are some issues in men's sports we don't want to replicate. But in general, in terms of providing opportunities, um, with this whole, and I know we'll talk about this later, but the whole notion of protect women's sports, I just want to ask people, what's the last sporting event that you've gone to of women's sports? You donated to, what have you provided resources for? Um, where else have you supported women's sport? So I think um, a lot of it is just, it's kind of common sense, but I just, I mean, I've been talking about these things for decades and watching it's, while there's lots more opportunities for women, the cultural appreciation of women's sports has only marginally changed. And that's what's holding it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, at Feisty, sort of, we say that we're building an empowering culture for active women, like largely because like that's kind of our vision and mission, because I think also it's like it's the cultural piece that definitely is like lagging behind and needs to change. Um and so, okay, for you, you know, tell us a bit about your research specifically. Like, what are the, some of the questions that you are interested in? So early on, I noticed that when I first started getting serious about reading the research, there was very little written about women. And again, I was looking predominantly in, in sports psychology at the time. Most of the articles, all the research was done on men. So I'm like, why is no one looking at women? And then it was like, wait a minute. As a sports psychologist, we're the people that do the hands-on work. We talk to athletes. We meet with teams. We're there with them on the field um, at their practices. And nobody talked about anything related to queerness. So Mm -hmm. for sports, it was completely silent at best and completely toxic at worst. Um, And I couldn't figure out, like, why am I going into this field that doesn't take care of the athletes that they're tasked with taking care of? kept thinking that we can teach people stress management, we can teach people skills to control their anxiety, or use imagery to help improve your skills, but that doesn't help if you're in a homonegative environment or a racist environment, that we really address the environment in order to help the athletes. So I've been looking at issues surrounding predominantly queer women in sport most of my career. I initially specifically at lesbians in sport because nobody was talking about it at that time. I shouldn't say nobody, very few people were talking about it at that time. Um, Continued and broadened the the sphere to more broadly looking at queerness in sport, as well as um, looking at uh, varied um, gender identity and um, transgender and gender nonconformity in sport. So my questions really are things are, what are the experience of sexuality and gender non-conforming people. What can we do to help people have better experiences? Mm-hmm. 
And how do we create more inclusive environments? Yeah, great questions. Okay, <laughs> like, can you share some of the answers that you found? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just asking you a giant question. Like, yeah, give us everything you know in five seconds. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had an easy answer for this. I mean, in general, when we look at women's sports and we look at, and most of my research is in women's sports, which is why I'm focused there. Um, when we look at the climates, there's places that it's gotten lots better. There are places where athletes of all types are fully embraced and you know diversity is fully accepted. And there's places where it's the complete opposite. Hmm. Here we are, Brittany Griner just came home and we're so very thankful about that. But at, she was told, don't, you know, you can't disclose your, your uh, lesbian identity. So this is where it's quashed. We have places that are still hostile toward lesbian athletes and other queer athletes. So it's a little bit of everything at the moment. Um, we're seeing research showing that athletes are looking for more, more positive climates. Um, it used to be that we had negative recruiting that went on in women's sport. If you're not familiar with that, negative recruiting is when a coach would tell a recruit, well, on that team, those athletes, you know, they date women and we have a very family environment on our team. Or they'd call out a coach for being, you know, whether it was true or not, they would say coaches or athletes on a, on a rival team were lesbian to convince the parents not to send the, not to send the athlete there. And we're in a state today I'm going to guess that still goes on in some places. Uh -huh. Athletes are coming to me saying, I don't want to go to those places. So it's backfiring. We're seeing that the, the younger athletes are much more aware and much more open to diversity. I have far more faith in the up and coming athletes than I do of the current administrators in changing the sport environment. Great. I, I, I feel the same way. That's so interesting. And you mentioned, like you mentioned certain climates were more, are or were more, more positive than others. Like this, was that like a, do you find that's on a sport by sport basis or location based or what's, what creates a positive environment versus not an inclusive environment? Yeah. Most of my studies have been qualitative, which means we interview people and it's a smaller sample. So there, I don't have these huge numbers to say this, right. let's compare this, this part of the country to another mm -hmm. experience. Honestly, I think it's based on the team leadership. I mean, I can look at my own university and I've been here long enough to look at different coaches and different athletes going through. And there were times that some of the climates on certain teams were incredibly hostile. And at the exact same time period, other teams were incredibly open and, and um, diverse and accepting of anybody and everybody regarding gender and, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. so I really think it's a people in charge. I think the coaches set a tone. And in some places, even if they're at the same university, it's completely different. Um, we've always kind of historically suggested that, you know, oh, you know, softball, they're all lesbians in softball. Well, at some places, there might be more lesbians. At other places, it's, you know, they're all straight. So, I mean, necessarily, there's a one, just one way to paint the whole, like, everybody on the, on the West Coast is more open-minded than everybody in the Midwest. Right. It's really mixed. And I really do think it's up to the people involved um, and not necessarily it's a sport by sport type of thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, um, I've had a long-term partnership with a media organization called Compete Sports um, and they're an LGBTQ organization. And they partnered with us because they were like, they were founded by gay men and actively looking for more women to be involved in their organization. But when I first started to go and they've changed things a lot, you know, like they're organization is more diverse now but when I first started to go to their events it was really interesting because I sort of had the realization that actually like the gay male experience in sport was so different to even like a lesbian experience or a different queer identity like where they you know a lot of them knew someone who had like committed suicide or had you know like there was this real heavy heavy impact of being of sometimes being like in the spotlight, you know, because you're a um, because you're a male athlete and you might be paid millions of dollars to do what you do. Um, do you? What are some of the differences that you've found between um, the kind of a male queer experience in sport versus female? Yeah, and I think a lot of it. Again, I haven't researched on the male side, but um, in terms of the readings that I've done and just knowing people, 
one of the things is the stereotypes. It's assumed if you're a good female athlete, you're a lesbian. Mm. If you're a assertive female athlete, you're lesbian. So that the, the assumption that everybody in women's sport or most women are lesbian anyway, it's like, so they're just there. We're just going to ignore them. Whereas for, on the men's side, in order to, to do really well, you have to gain characteristics that reinforce masculinity. Mm-hmm. And the assumption is that a gay male can't, you know, is feminine, cannot be masculine. And if there is a gay male, well, what's that going to say about the rest of us? Or how are we going to, um, let me say this another way. When the assumption is that there are no gay men, so then they can just create this environment that's very heteronormative, that's homonegative, where they, you know, call each other fag and what have you. And with the assumption that there are no gay men because gay men can't be good athletes. Mm-hmm. And so that's created really different environments. And there's some, some authors that have written that some, some gay men going into sport and the army are places where they can hide their gayness. And this is going back a few generations mm-hmm. and today. But by exuding athleticism, you can hide your gayness if you should, should want to. And unfortunately, in sport, and we're seeing in men's sport, there are very few out male athletes in high visible, highly visible sport, particularly Olympic and even more so in professional sport. And that sends a message. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. When athletes do come out, they know that there's other gay male athletes out there. They're not going to out them, which they shouldn't, but they know they're there. Mm-hmm. And they even talked about um, when John Amici came out, I heard him speak at a conference and he talked about how, well, yeah, my team all knew I was gay. It's just we just kept it amongst us because mainly the assumption is that we're going to lose fans if they know we have a gay male on the team. So there's that pressure when you're at the highly elite level. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different pressures. I'm not going to say that 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 there have never been pressures on women to be more um, feminine and to present themselves in ways that are feminine and not queer because. Um, are you familiar with uh, Rini Portland at Penn State? She um, oh, had a long history. She's not retired, but has a long history of um, being discriminatory toward athletes she perceived as lesbians. In fact, she was sued by one of those athletes um, and put out of court. And so, I mean, so there's been situations, I mean, certainly on the women's side also, where they're told, no, you cannot be lesbian if you want to be on my team. On the men's side, it's just been exacerbated and it's much more widely across more teams where within women's sports, historically, there have been lesbians in women's sport. And because of the presence and the assumptions that they're there in some places, there's been greater acceptance, or mm-hmm. depending how you want to look at it. I'm thinking about just kind of that tension. There's been a tension, I think, in just based on observation, like in women's sport between that kind of like the fact that sport is built on such a hyper-masculine model, right? And like maybe is a space for people who um, don't identify quite so feminine, right? But then also this kind of like need to continue to be feminine in order to like present themselves, you know, I'm not saying this very articulately, but like present themselves or ourselves to the public in a way that's going to be marketable, right? Um, So that's, I feel like that's a tension that's always in women's sports. Do you see that sort of changing and evolving? I think it's starting to change. I mean, when I look at when I was in school and what it took to present as, as a feminine female who also was an athlete was very different than in today's. Um, well, I never quite fit that mold. I mean, you had to, you know, be toned, but not too muscular. You couldn't be too assertive. You couldn't be too competitive. Um, you needed to like wear dresses when you were off the field, things of that sort. And there were teams that, you know, were being told if we're traveling, you have to be in a dress and heels. And, you know, I'd have, I've talked to athletes when I first started that were like, we're really klutzy in high heels. <laughs> to wear them going through an not airport dragging our luggage <laughs> you know? in the airport too like not to a formal dinner but like <laughs> oh yes when they were traveling so I mean so there I mean there were coaches that really wanted to present their team as looking very feminine to try to mm-hmm. offset that 
lesbian stereotype or the assumption like, look, we're pretty, we can't be lesbians, come to our games. And, you know, and I think over time, we're seeing that greater acceptance of women with muscles, you know, so the to how much muscle is too much muscle is shifting, but there's still a point at which if you're too big, yeah, we're going to stereotype you or we're not going to support you or we're going to tell you you need to kind of back off a little bit. Um, scary thing is, is we're seeing situations with kids sports that if a 10 year old is too good, people are questioning, like, is she really a girl? Does she belong on this team? Um, it's crazy. So, I mean, when female athletes are too good or too muscular, they're still questioned. So there's a line, although no one can say exactly where that is. It's, you know, sort of like we know it when we see it, there's too much of it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh man. I never thought about that. Like the, like a girl being questioned because she's too good at her sport. Well, although as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, that's also, that's a sign of the times that things are changing, right? That actually we have young girls who have more, like more young girls have access and opportunity in sport. And then, you know, you know, then you have a higher level of performance and people are going to be shocked and are going to say, stupid things in the meantime right so it seems yeah wow okay let's um that sort of hinges on or leads into my next question like I wanted to talk about um trans women in sport because I know that's like a really big issue right now in particular in elite sport um and I think like I'm personally I'm all about inclusion first uh but as an ex-elite athlete like my in the past, you know, I've been parts of parts of t- groups that advocate for women's rights, you know, in our sport. And even within those groups, I find people are very divided on this topic. Um, so it's it's so complicated. But um, do you have thoughts on how we include trans folks? <laughs> Just like, oh my, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm with you. I'm all about inclusion. I mean, I think about what's at stake. Mm-hmm. When we're talking children, oh, please, why are we even separating six-year-olds into boys' teams and girls' teams? Right. You know, it I doesn't th- even make sense physiologically. No. Right. Like, yeah. So let them all just play beehive soccer together and learn yeah. to appreciate each other. I mean, I kind of think that if we allow kids at a really young age to just be kids learning their sports together, mm-hmm. be Susie's really good and you know, Tommy's sitting the bench. And they're not gonna, they're just gonna know. What does it take to be a good teammate? Not you're a girl and you can't be as good or you're a boy and you get more, but they're just going to be kids that are going to learn to appreciate good teammates, good people, good, good athletes. And as they grow up, it's not going to be so gendered um, in their assumptions. And if we put boys and girls together, they're going to learn from the same people. They're going to gain the same experiences. They're going to get the same resources and all of that. Uh, once they hit puberty, it gets, the, it gets more complicated. Generally speaking, most of the policies, I mean, it's a hot mess out there policy-wise, as you as you know, yes. um, CAA changed their policy to every sport governing body can create their own rules, which is insane. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. At the high school level, we can come back to that. At the high school level, every state has its own set of rules, every state high school association, and there are places where... Athletes can compete based on their gender identity, period. No more questions asked. Mm -hmm. Places where whatever's on your birth certificate is where you have to compete, and that's it. And there's places that actually require high school athletes to have gone through complete gender confirmation surgeries, which most people aren't going to, most medical professionals are not going to do them at that age. So so the rules are all over the place. I, I err on the side of inclusion. On one hand, the numbers are so small. Mm-hmm. It's not like all of a sudden, all these boys are going to come to girls sport and say, I'm going to be on the girls side because as a trans athlete, I'm going to start winning because life is not easy for trans people. <laughs> it's, I mean, they put up with discrimination. There's lots of issues out there. It's not so simple that a boy is just going to one day say, I'm going to call myself trans so I can be on the girls soccer team. Well, and that's got to be against the rules anyway, right? Like at some point, you know, you can't just show up and not be living in a certain gender identity and then suddenly play sports like that. Like, 
Right. And even the, the policies that say you can compete consistent with your gender identity, you have to show that this is your gender identity, not like I changed my mind yesterday. Right. <laughs> and so what we're when we think about inclusion, even from going to talk from high school down, what are the at the worst case scenario, a cis person might lose to a trans athlete? When we think about life as a trans person, particularly a trans young person, and in order to compete in sport as a trans person, you've got to come out to the whole world. You know, queer people can go under the radar and just, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm a lesbian, or I'm going to tell my three best friends and no one else. You can't do that as a trans person because you have to appear on a team and show your credentials, so to speak, or medical background in order to compete on that team. And if you're transitioned during high school or middle school, people know that you were on this team and now you wanna be on that team. So it's not something done easily. They're already dealing with discrimination, just the impact of being different, which in our society is not always easy. Trying to be trans in a world that's not quite sure how, even when we wanna be inclusive, not quite sure the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. And outright discrimination. And yet they still want to be in sport, even though they're facing all that. So on one hand, if they're that resilient and they make the team, isn't that who you want on your team? Someone that is desperately wanting to be there and is doing everything they possibly can to participate in sport with you. Mm -hmm. And we know that the statistics on mental health and suicide and attempts, um, trans children are at great risk. So on one hand, we have kids that might lose to a trans athlete. On the other hand, we kick trans kids out of sport and they might commit suicide. A no-brainer. Like, who should we be supporting? We should be supporting the people that are most vulnerable. And if we make sports safe for the most vulnerable, isn't that going to make it better for everyone? If we create an environment where we are supportive of the trans athlete who's different, but yet somebody we can learn to, that we can respect and embrace and bring into the whole being of being on this team, that's going to make sport better for everybody else on the team. It's going to make it more inclusive. Um, and everybody, everyone's got something. So everyone's going to feel that they can be themselves. Mm -hmm. so I, yeah, I truly believe that we really should just be inclusive at, at that age. Uh, the concern that what about scholarships? If we have all these trans kids winning, why aren't, you know, we're going to, cisgender kids are going to lose out on scholarships. You know what? I mean, I when we look at in every sport, there's always that kid that wins all the time. You know, if I was playing basketball against Brittany Griner, who was what six five in high school, <laughs> is that not unfair? <laughs> I'm I'm five four. I mean, it's unfair to most. You know, it's like we don't say oh, but as soon as it's oh, that six five person is trans. Now we can hate that person, right? But if someone is just that good and they're not trans, it's like, oh, let's embrace their how great they are. But as soon as we notice that that person is trans or learn about that, now all of a sudden it becomes unfair. I mean, in swimming, which is a hot issue at the college yes. level, like, when you look at Katie Ledecky, mm -hmm. all the kudos for everything that she's accomplished, and you look at Leah Thomas, they're the same size, height and weight, roughly the same. Um, you know, it's not like one is bringing this huge advantage. And Katie Ledecky, I mean, she is winning by a half or more length of the pool. Mm -hmm. Something about her gives her this extraordinary ability. Is that not fair to the average swimmer? We don't, we, we embrace the cisgender athletes to just dominate. We can't seem to do that collectively for the trans athletes that do that. And in the grand scheme of things, as long as a trans athlete is mediocre, nobody complains. Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> you, sure, you can be on our team or you can run track as soon as they start winning. We saw that with the, uh, the sprinters in Connecticut. We saw that with Leah Thomas. I mean, let's be honest. How many people paid attention to Ivy League women's swimming before Leah Thomas started winning? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it changed. The whole NCAA changed because of one athlete started winning. I mean, it, it's kind of insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I could almost get emotional about it. Like I feel like, you know, in my career, I've like, I would, if a trans 
woman had been in one of the races that I won. This is honestly how I feel about it. And she had beat me, right? I would give her that trophy. Like, I, I almost think it would be better for the world if she wins, because she can be an example. She can, like you said, like she can save people's lives, right? Whereas I'm just another cis woman who looks the part, who had the opportunities, who doesn't deal with the all the the challenges that a trans woman might deal with, you know, who just showed up and won, right? And so um, that's that's how I feel about it. Um, I know that like, you know, in sport, when you think about Olympic sport or this need to like, and I'm just, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit and, and I want to know what you think about this, but like the need to like define what a woman is for the purpose of sport is so difficult, right? Even within the Olympic movement and this terrible history we have of like, you know, trying to check like who is a woman and who is not. Like, do you see a need to like, quote unquote, protect women's sports or how do we define what a woman is and who gets to be in that category in, in elite sport or when scholarships are on the line or Olympic medals? Again, I would say, and nobody's really listening to me, but I would say if someone is lived as a woman, identifies as a woman, wants to be on women's sports, why not? All the brouhaha about testosterone, particularly when we're looking at intersex athletes, and this is what the Olympics and the um, World Athletics has, has been fighting, is that when women have um, unusually high levels of testosterone, they're suggesting, or they've mandated, that they cannot compete in women's events. Well, these are people that are born with bodies that just make a lot of testosterone. Mm -hmm. We also know that there are women who have made it to the Olympics who have intersex conditions where their body doesn't process testosterone, which leads to say, why are we saying testosterone only? Why is that the one thing that we're suggesting is whether or not someone should be included in women's sports or not? So it's a very myopic view. I, I struggle because anyone that does gender research from areas that I, you know, biomedical research, which is not my, my, what I do. Mm -hmm. Gender is complicated. It's not based only on hormones. It's not based only on genes. There are XY females. There are females with anatomy that differs from the average with hormones that differ from the average. Um, there are women that are exceptionally tall. There are women that are exceptionally strong. We know that the women come in so many shapes and sizes, as do men, that it's hard to pick one thing to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to pick testosterone. And this is the one thing that's going to separate whether or not you can compete. Honestly, I, there's a long history of keeping women's sport within a certain little box. So if the performances get too good, then wait a minute, what can we do to stop that? And when we look at the the athletes who have gotten disqualified from world athletics through um, track and field, most of them, they're great. They're, they're world-class level athletes, but a lot of them, it's not like, it's not like Semenya is breaking records like Ledecky is, not like they're running times consistent with the men. So what's wrong with someone who has trained and lived as a woman all their life dominating their sport? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's i mean it's insane because i mean clearly when we look at particularly what what's going on with, with the world athletics and track and field these are people that have competed in girls and women's sport all their life and they hit a certain level someone does a test on them and says oops nope we're not going to let you compete anymore mm -hmm. and compete on the men's side which you know we we do know that at on average, at the very elite levels of sport and timed events, men tend to do about 10%. You know, if we look at world records, the men are about 10% faster, 10% stronger on things we could time or measure like that. So the women with high testosterone are not competing at those times. You know, so you know, it doesn't make sense to like, okay, that's your only option. And the idea of creating this third category of intersex and trans athletes, that I'm sorry, that's just silly. Um, one, you're looking at a very small pool of athletes. And two, you're looking at people who identify as male or female. Not what's interesting, what's totally left out of this whole conversation are non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer folk. Mm -hmm. We still, they just have to, I want to just say pick a side. They can pick where they feel comfortable. 
um, which usually sport wise, they go along with what their physical body looks like. But yeah, I mean, we don't even talk about how do we be inclusive of everybody, not just people who, you know, when we talk about transgender people in sport, we're talking about trans men and trans women, people who can now fit into the uh, category with with whom they want to train with. And what do you think about, you know, in, in endurance sport, like I come from triathlon, we have a lot of cyclists in our audience and runners. Like, what do you think about some of these bigger events? I think Boston recently created um, a non-binary category. Uh, do you think that that's a good thing? I think if it's voluntary, I mean, right. I, you know, there are some people that be like, hey, cool. I have my own category. I want to be in that. Um, recognizing who I am. That's really cool. Great. Let them have at it. There are others that are going to be like, but, but I'm a trans woman. I belong on the women's side. Why should I have to be in this category? So again, I think people need to be able to follow where their heart is. And the non-binary category, it just seems that it's going to be such a small group. I mean, I appreciate that it recognizes people, but I also think it cordons them off. So I kind of go back to how do people want to be presented? How do they want to be identified? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting because it's like it's different when you're talking about like if so, I'm thinking about gravel cycling. I don't know if you anything about gravel cycling. No. It's, <laughs> it's a fairly new sport. It's like cyclists getting kind of off the road into and, and sometimes I find with newer, it's not a new sport. People have always ridden bikes off the <laughs> off the road on gravel roads, but it's fairly new in terms of having these big events where people go 100, 200 miles on gravel bikes in a, in a race, and um sometimes these newer sports will have, like they were very quick to adopt a non-binary category where people are self-selecting into that, into that category without anyone, no one's being forced to go into the category. Right. And then it's also just like a, everybody's all in it together kind of event. So the category is only relevant for most people unless you're winning by, because you've been able to check the, the right gender identity that you want in the race. So I feel like that's an easy yes. and kind of like pretty important one. Um, and interestingly, like you mentioned, it was a small number. I think the first time with this one race, I'm thinking of like the first time I think there was one person in the non-binary category. And then the next year they had the race, there was something like 16 or, so it's just like once people, oh, this is where I'm being supportive. I'm going to go there, you know? Um, so interesting. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any solutions for that, but I do know that, um, I definitely tend towards inclusion too. And like what you talked about with the trans issues, like there is a lot of like, I just want to name it. There's a lot of like misogyny kind of like baked into the way that we have that conversation you know um and i'd love to see i'd love to like redefine what sport is in the first place like have like the way like american ninja warrior i don't know if you're familiar with that but like the in intentionally creating a course that both like that both men and women that either like that anyone essentially any human could win i think that's amazing <laughs> right there are so many different ways that we could organize sport and I don't think we're going to see this happen too soon and certainly not at the levels of college and above and anyone trying to gain scholarships. But what if we separated kids based on height and weight? Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at like football, for example, and girls can't play football because they're going to get hurt. Well, what if we had teams where, okay, if you're five, six and under, you're on this team. If you're six, you know, 5'11 and under, you're on this team, or by weight. I mean, as it is, they're like, we're going to protect the girls and not let them compete. But the little boys, boys that are small, you can just go beat up and we're not going to care about you. Right. So why not create a league that there's going to be some girls that are perfectly capable of and are big enough to fit in with, you know, and play at high school, high school football? Why not let them play and create opportunities for other people of different sizes? Um, maybe we create something and there's pros and cons is based on ability level. And I do realize, like we said, I mean, on average, um, particularly at younger ages, on average, we see better athlete males, cis males tend to make better athletes um, than I shouldn't say make, but in terms of just they they get tend to be taller and stronger than the average female. So if you only did it based on ability, we'd probably have a male team at the top with 
females in it. But what if you also had teams that were mixed? What if you had teams that were all female? What if we had a variety of options for people to choose from rather than just just gender? And I know this is complicated and there are no easy answers to this, but we need to rethink how we how we organize sport and what's the purpose? Of it? Is the purpose of middle school sport to prep kids to get a college scholarship? Or should it be, let's just let kids have fun and play and enjoy and learn how to do learn skills and learn how to be good teammates, which is a whole different way. And then it doesn't matter if you have the biggest, tallest people playing. Something that everyone gets an opportunity. Um, sport has gotten so competitive, even at the young ages. And, um, you know, if you're not on travel teams in middle school, you're not going to make the high school team anymore. And that's expensive. We are making sport too expensive for kids to go to school and be on the school team anymore. Mm-hmm. The, the whole system of sport, yes, we're making it exceptionally hard for transgender athletes, but we're making it hard for all sorts of athletes right now um, because the system is set up to create many professional athletes. And this you have to do this to become professional. It's like, just let kids play. Let's just have a rec league. I was actually talking to a friend recently that was looking for just a recreational sport league and could not find one in time. They had highly competitive leagues, but there wasn't just like, where do we go to just play a couple of days a week and enjoy it? And we don't have, we don't seem to have that nearby. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my own daughter expressed an interest in, of course, because she's not going to do competitive sport because that's what I did. So, but she, she understands the connection between moving her body and mental health, you know, and she's expressed this, she's 12 years old, expressed an interest in finding a, some kind of non-competitive sports group. And even at her age, I'm finding it very difficult (laughs) to find something that she enjoys doing and is is non-competitive by, by her definition too, you know, Um, it's really interesting. Uh, And I don't think she's alone in that. No. Well, and that's just it. And the more competitive it is, that's when people get crazy. Um, Connecticut sprinters, um, got condemnation because people were afraid they were taking was the, the trans females were winning won this tournament and they were worried that their kids weren't going to get scholarships. Right. So, you know, when people are concerned about money and making it to the next level, they get a little crazy. Yeah. We just have sport for fun. We can offer, we can do all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm, totally. And I think, you know, the competitive side is important to sport, but we just tend to like overemphasize it or, or see it as the be all and end all. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'd love your opinion before we go, like on, because we're a media company, you know, um, and especially in terms of um, queer, like queer athletes or trans athletes, like how can media improve the way that we do sports coverage? I mean, the first thing is really simple cover women's sport. <laughs> Right. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the most recent um, literature coming out, ESPN Sports Center spends less than 5% of its time on women's sport. It's still less than 5%? Still less than 5%. Wow. This is a 27-year longitudinal study. Yeah. I think we got up to maybe 7% and we're back down to 5%. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, cover it. And I mean, we're seeing, I mean, the fact that the coverage of Brittany Griner, I mean, while it's a terrible situation that she had to go through, that people are just like, this is her wife. And, she, you know, and listen to her wife or here's what she, her wife has said. And talking about her family, I mean, the more we do that, the more we normalize that mm-hmm. different people. Um, we, you know, talk about people, you know, and their partners and their their husbands, their wives, that we should just be open. I mean, as as open as the individual athlete wants to be, but if an athlete, you know, talks about their family, that should be part of the conversation. I mean, that should be part of the coverage. I think cover more women's sport. You're going to see more Megan Rapinos and Supers out there and not think anything of it. Um, You know, see people hug their same sex partner after a major win and it just becomes more normalized. And until they start covering women's sport in general, as you said, I mean, misogyny, I think it's more sexist that we just don't see women, women, um, women's sport on TV. Um, the bias that, oh, nobody wants to watch it or they can't make money. And I mean, all of that, there's so many reasons why we could counter that. But I think 
the media just step up and be there. Mm-hmm. You know, put put it out there on major um, papers, major um, resources where we see women. You know, where, and then we see queer people. And the same thing on the men's side. I mean, they're already covered, so they don't need more coverage. But if somebody, you know, wants to talk about their their sexual identity, um, yeah, go ahead and cover that. Right now, it's treated as like, I don't know, people get this, oh my gosh, we have to congratulate this man for coming out. Just treat it as normal. Like, he has a boyfriend, he has a wife. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I hear what you, I hear you saying tell more stories, cover women's sports first, and then we will hear more stories, right? And and you mentioned earlier, you know, the power of the narrative, the power of personal stories, the power of just visibility and representation, that's huge. Mm-hmm. I, I teach in a sport management program and you don't see many high level females in sport management positions and in coaching positions. Um, we're seeing more and more in their highlight. Uh, we're having this rush of the first women officials, the first women referees, the first women in various positions. But as a whole across you know, college sport, it is highly male dominated in the coaching and the administrative levels. We need to see people. So if girls don't see athletes at the professional level, they don't know that they can try to be there or they just don't learn the stories of and understand that oh, some some athletes have girlfriends, some athletes have boyfriends. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the representation is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think and I even think of like just back to Brittany Griner, like her the change that has happened just in the course of her career, yeah. even right. Yes. Like from when I remember when she first came out and she was one of the first to come out and to, to now where like you're saying, you know, um, yes, horrible situation, but we do have a situation in which, you know, her wife is on TV able to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. um, And it seems very normal. So um, just seeing that change gives me hope. Yeah. I always have hope. I'm always hoping for better and hoping for, but we are improving. It's just very slow. I get frustrated at how long it's taken to get where we are today. Like we could have been here decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think that like you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the next generation, like my daughter, who's like a young Gen Z. Right. And she's, you know, I think half of her friends at school um, identify as non-binary of some, of some kind, you know, like she's just coming through a whole different generation of um, understanding gender and gender expression, which will be really interesting to see how that plays out in sports as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, they're the ones that are going to push the, the adults to have to make change. Yeah, I agree. Like this whole, the whole conversation that we're having about how do we include trans folks and the issues around trans women in sport and the non-binary categories like we were talking about like I suspect that generation's going to find the answers you know yes I hope so yeah me too Um, well Vicky thank you so much for coming on the show Um, really appreciate you and the work that you've done Um, and thanks well thanks I've enjoyed chatting with you thanks for having me Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. 
I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tofosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tofosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They are shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you.